we are back. Uh, you know, I do want to note before we completely abandon politics, and the, the truth is we probably aren't going to be able to pull that off for the remainder of the show, but we should note that our governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, was eagerly helping the Bush campaign in Ohio, of course, the pivotal state in Tuesday's election. Uh Governor Schwarzenegger uh, hosts an annual bodybuilding and fitness extravaganza in the in Ohio's state capital and has nurtured other business investments there. So he's well known in Ohio and went back there to spread a little bit of his star power and help the Bush campaign. And uh, I don't know how many of that 130, 140,000 vote margin of Ohio to Bush that we can uh, chalk up to Governor Schwarzenegger. I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that the governor who loves to portray himself as a centrist and a moderate here in California uh, did his best to deliver us four more years of George W. Bush. Now, the governor does owe the Bush family quite a um, quite a political IOU. He made his break in politics when George Bush I appointed him as the head of the president's Council on Physical Fitness. Now, I'm not sure to this day really how physically fit the governor is. He certainly had very, very large muscles, but um, I suppose it would be uncharitable and unkind to point out the fact that George Herbert Walker Bush uh, was somewhat unimpressed with our governor's athletic prowess and referred to him as, uh, well, um, it's it's not a word we can say on, on a family radio show. But uh, I do get a kick out of that because, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush was not exactly noted as being Mr. Macho himself. Oh, yeah, I know he played baseball at Yale, but, uh, you know, even like Al Haig and a lot of people referred to the wimp factor when it came to that campaign. All right, let's do some science. We have neglected science for weeks. Uh, very exciting development at, at Saturn where the Cassini spacecraft went whipping past Saturn's large moon Titan last week. Titan has an atmosphere pretty much comparable to the atmosphere we have here on Earth. It's got a very strange surface. It's got a smoggy atmosphere, not unlike L.A. on a bad uh, August afternoon. They use some radar to peer through that smog and take a look at the surface, and they're seeing things they don't quite understand. They think there may well be lakes Yes, lakes of hydrocarbons on the surface. It's got wind speeds comparable to what is on Earth. In, in a strange sort of way, this is a rather Earth-like place. Now, this was the second flyby of Titan made by the Cassini uh, spacecraft. It's going to make something like 45 more, and we're going to bring back Trina Ray, spokesperson for uh, Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, to talk about how they are putting this together. Uh, very exciting stuff, and uh, we are looking forward to uh, to talking that over with Trina Ray. All right, another science story of interest. Um, last month, apparently, human beings aren't the only ones with toolkits. Cameras in the Congo rainforest recorded 121 chimpanzees as they visited two kinds of termite mounds. The chimps would arrive with toolkits. They would have different sort of sticks with different sort of functions. Uh, they used a, a short stick to puncture the termite mound. Then they would switch to a fishing probe, I guess with frond-like ends to draw out the termites, which are a mainstay of the chimp diets. Uh, when, they were, when they were up against underground nests, they would employ larger 
puncturing sticks. And uh, those definitely did have frayed ends that would use to, that could gather the termites. So, uh, you know, I don't know whether they need to go to Sears to get a craftsman a toolbox or not, but it is interesting that uh, chimps are a lot more clever and human-like than we knew. And a big story from Indonesia, they uncovered uh, fossils. Or actually, I guess these aren't really fossils. They are actually the preserved bones of a species of human that almost made it up to the present era. They are a new, uh, a new branch on the human family tree, unfortunately an extinct one. These were three feet tall humans that were clearly uh, descended from Homo erectus. They were not Homo sapiens. Um, it's, a, it's a very sad fact of life that Homo erectus apparently survived on the Australian continent up to 10,000 years ago, about the time civilization was starting in other parts of the world. Homo erectus, a different species of hominid, a more primitive type of human, had survived in Australia. Unfortunately, competition from the aboriginal population that arrived there did wipe them out. Now, I should clarify, we're not positive that the aborigines are responsible for uh, for bumping off Homo erectus, but uh, that is what people pretty much think happened. I noticed an article in Via Magazine, which comes to me from my uh, car insurance company, uh, talking about how uh, researchers here at UC Davis um, have found a way to induce sturgeon to produce caviar in a non-fatal fashion. There's been, of course, horrible overfishing in the Caspian Sea area, where 95% of the world's caviar has come. But after the breakup of the Soviet Union, it's just been over-harvesting and pollution, and, uh, you know, the world's most famous sturgeons are disappearing. So they're, finding, they're trying to find a way, a more environmentally friendly way, to produce this uh, favorite food of, uh, of uh, the rich and famous. And I have to admit, when I was in the, in, in the last days of the Soviet Union, God, what was that, 1991 now, it's been a while, uh, the last six months before it, before it disappeared from the face of the earth, and I had some Russian caviar, and I have to say, it's pretty good. It would be a great thing if they could find a way here at uh, UCD to, um, to protect the animals so they could repro- live and reproduce and make more uh, sturgeon to make more eggs. That would be a nice, a nice thing. There's some problems in doing that. Maybe, we'll, uh, maybe we'll, we'll try and seek out these folks that are doing this good work and, and talk to them about their research. If you've listened to this program, you know that we, uh, we often say we're going to go off and, and do something like that. And, and by God, uh, we may not get to it next week or the week after, but uh, sooner or later, we, we generally do. That's really a kind of science-slash-technology story that, uh, that we really, really like. Now, here's, here's a story I'm a little bit skeptical of. The October 23rd issue of New Scientist magazine had the following in it. Sleep experts in Australia say they have successfully treated a woman who had sex while sleepwalking. For several months, she left her house and partner during the night and had sex with strangers. She had no memory of what occurred, but evidence such as condoms alerted the couple. Yes, I'm not making this up. I'm reading this as written. This is, this is a supposedly a legitimate item, not an April Fool's item. Peter Buchanan, a sleep expert at the Wolcock Institute of Medical Research in Sydney, who handled the case, was initially skeptical, but he said he was convinced by a number of factors, including the distress of the couple. 
Sleepwalking is often triggered by stress. Buchanan told a sleep science conference in Brisbane last week, and this may have been the cause with the woman. Her nocturnal <laughs> excursions stopped after she received counseling. Now, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall when those marital conferences were taking place? <laughs> Honey, I love you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you're lying. <laughs> but, I mean, what's up with this? I don't know. I, I had a roommate when I was a student here at UC Davis back at uh, the Webster Emerson dorms. Got up in the middle of the night, took a shower, was combing his hair, and then woke up. I remember him getting up in the middle of the night thinking, what's he doing taking a shower at 3 in the morning? And uh, when I was in medical school some years later, my girlfriend, and, and I, know, I know this happened, she would be in a zombie-like state in the middle of the night. She got up once, went out to her Volkswagen, fired it up, and drove across town to her apartment and never woke up. She later joined the Navy and uh, was then f- seen at times strolling across the ship in the middle of the night. And when confronted, like, what are you doing? She managed to come up. She managed to wake up and concoct a plausible explanation. They almost threw her out of the Navy on account of it. So uh, uh, luckily she got, uh, got duty on land somewhere, and the issue of walking off a ship in the middle of the night didn't come into play because... It actually is a rather reasonable regulation. The Navy does not want its sailors strolling about in the moonlight and walking off the deck into the Pacific Ocean. And it appears the verdict is in on what happened to the poor Genesis spacecraft, which re-entered the Earth's atmosphere on September 8th, was supposed to uh, gently waft down on a parachute and have a helicopter stunt pilot gently pluck it from the sky to protect the plates on the inside. Unfortunately, the uh, parachute did not deploy, and it went into the ground at about 200-plus miles per hour, which was not good at all for the delicate plates inside the instrument. Well, they figured out what happened. Preliminary conclusions blame the crash on a design error that involves the orientation of gravity switch devices. Apparently, there were four small cylindrical switches designed to sense the re-entry and trigger the parachute. But they were drawn upside down at Lockheed Martin's, in Lockheed Martin's technical drawings, so they were installed upside down. So these switches didn't realize that the spacecraft was in the re-entry mode and did not then call for the parachute. Apparently there's, another, there's a similar device installed on another sample collecting mission called Stardust, which went by Comet Vild last January. Uh, that'll be returning to Earth next year, but they believe that in that case, the switches were installed right side up. You know, I'll, I'll just wager the guys that put those switches in are biting their nails right now just thinking about that re-entry next year. But we, 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 we hope all goes well. Boy, and speaking of being a fly on the wall, wouldn't you like to have known how that conversation went down about the Mars mission 10 years ago where... They did a calculation on the amount of thrust in the, in the retro rockets that needed to fire to enter the Martian atmosphere, and they neglected to convert the units from, from the English system to metric units. So I think it had like one-third the amount of uh, thrust it was supposed to use, or was it three times too much? I don't know. It was, it was, it was way off, and uh, you know, a billion-dollar mission was lost. Of course, as you know, in this program, we're big fans of uh, the space program. And uh, and we do believe that a lot of it can be done with 
robots. But, you know, if you're going to build one of these things, do a little bit of checking. You know, it was, they, they were bragging. Remember the Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope? They were bragging on how they had it so finely ground that it was basically almost within, the, within a wavelength of light accuracy until someone determined later that, well, yeah, but we did do a little miscalculation that turns out that it was off by a tenth of a millimeter, which would not, in fact, be acceptable in a set of binoculars that you bought at Big Five Sporting Goods. Fortunately, they were able to build a giant contact lens that they took up on the space shuttle, and it was able to fix the view of the universe from the uh, Hubble telescope, which they're trying to now build another robot to go up there and fix the thing because of the shuttle problems. Uh, You know, uh, it may not be able to get serviced. The Hubble does need to get saved. Uh, It was money very well spent. All right, Nightem, I've been saving since uh, since July in the uh, in the science uh, realm. Article again from New Scientist. We we love quoting this magazine as they do on This Week in Science uh, on Tuesday mornings on KDVS, another program you might want to consider listening to on our public affairs lineup. Um, Some studies have shown that the appearance of grandparents in the anthropologic record may have facilitated the birth of modern civilization. Anthropologist Rachel Kaspari of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor came to this conclusion after studying the ages of adults living in human societies for the past few million years. Um, There was a dramatic increase in the number of adults surviving to an older age at one point, which coincided with the appearance of artistic, inventive modern humans in the early Upper Paleolithic period, which is about 13,000 to 30,000 years ago. the theory is that grandparents, when you, can, when you can survive a little bit longer to become a grandparent, uh, this has a tremendous effect in you know, allowing civilized communities to develop. It allows people to rear more children. There's more helping hands. There's more valuable knowledge and experience that have been gained that can be passed down. Uh, it promotes kinship across the generations. It's, uh, it's amazing to think about it, but really... With grandparents came civilization. And they went back and looked at Australopithecine skulls from one to three million years ago. Well, apparently only one in four of the individuals got old enough to become potential grandparents. By the time we got to the, uh, the period of the Neanderthals, 130,000 years ago, uh, apparently four out of ten individuals were surviving into later life. Pretty interesting stuff. I feel fortunate in my life to have uh, have had uh, all four grandparents playing an active role in in my in my childhood and helping uh, uh, shape uh, who I am and and I wish uh, I wish that was just something that everybody uh, out there could uh, could benefit from. I think that um, with six adults uh, rearing you, you you have a much different perspective on the universe than you do when you only have one or two. All right, we're doing we're doing science. Let's just, just just run out. Let's run the table on science on this segment today, and let's try and keep it light. There's a lot to be. Uh, there's a lot of heaviness that's out there, uh, you know. But let's let's take this rather light article, and let's go to the well one more time. New Scientist, October sixteenth. An article I couldn't believe when I read this. I read it twice because I kept thinking they've got to be kidding, but they're not. Apparently, the world's most 
sought-after coffee was dismissed as an urban legend, but it's not. Food scientist Massimo Marconi was traipsing around in Ethiopia uh, searching for the source of what was reputed to be the most exotic beverage on the planet. And uh, at some point he was, he, was, he was despairing over finding it, but then, lucky for him, he came upon a fresh pile of civet dung. The civet is a, uh, is a cat-like creature. It looks almost like a ferret in a way. It probably is more, it's probably in the, uh, in, the, in the ferret family, the weasel family. I don't think it's a true, um, a true feline. But these cat-like creatures uh, crawl around and eat lots of different things. One of the things they eat are ripe coffee cherries. Now, uh, you may not be aware of the fact, but you probably should be, that uh, the coffee bean is not a bean at all. It's the pit of a fruit. And uh, the fruit is a red, uh, sort of a pretty fruit growing on a shrub. You harvest the fruit, you let the fruit rot away, and then the pit that's left is what you then roast and grind up and make your uh, favorite morning eye-opener with. Well, it was rumored um, in Africa that uh, apparently Dutch settlers established coffee plantations on the islands of Java and Sumatra, and I guess they had civets there too. And... um, these palm civets would feed on the coffee cherries. They would swallow the bean whole and, uh, and then, of course, then uh, produce what's left in the pile of dung. Well, plantation workers collected the beans from these civets' droppings. Don't ask me why. Apparently, they just thought, well, waste not, want not. And someone realized that these beans had a very particular flavor. And as preposterous as this whole idea sounds, the article explains that many cooked foods taste good because of the Mallard-Browning reaction in which amino groups react with sugars and form, you know, happily form new flavor compounds, such as why cooked food tastes pretty good. Well, inside the gut of these animals, apparently chemical reactions take place to the beans that... uh, produce some sort of magic. Um, they looked at these beans and, 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 and seen how, yes, there's obviously some enzymatic action on the surface. There's some pits. Something took place. And they were comparing it to the wet processed coffee, which is, I guess, you uh, rather than simply allowing beans to dry in the sun, you rinse them with water and ferment them for 12 to 36 hours, apparently producing a pretty good cup of java. Well, these civet dung beans... Are, are gathered up, ground up, made into coffee, and this stuff apparently can sell for $1,000 a kilogram. The people writing the article said they, they tried it and, and they, uh, you know, and noted that it, well, it, it, it did taste different. I mean, whether you, have to, you must have to be some sort of true connoisseur of coffee to go for this, and I, and I would not, I would not look for this anytime soon in Starbucks. And, and we would caution you that the civet is a cat-like animal. We assume you cannot take coffee beans and run them through kitty <laughs> to obtain a similar happy result. So please, let's keep the people at the SPCA happy and, uh, you know, do, do not, do not try this at home. Leave it up to professionals. But uh, this stuff is called copy luwak. I got, I got to quote the close of the article. They say, is it really worth $1,000 a kilogram? Probably not. And what's worse, even if you do cough up the money, there's no guarantee you're getting the real thing. 
Kapi Luwak's flavor can be replicated by clever blending of normal beans and sometimes is by unscrupulous producers. Now, can you see the argument that takes place over that? No, no, no. You know, I assure you, we did pluck these coffee beans out of animal dung. All right, I got no way I can top that story, so let's, uh, let, let, let's get out, shall we? You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.